walk uprightly. The Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for inspiring these words. We thank you for your care of these words through all the generations, that we may find them here before us, that they may rest in our laps as we read them, that they may reverberate in our ears as we hear them. May they dwell in us richly. These words, these words from you, given to us most graciously. Heavenly Father, I pray that what I say this morning will be in accordance with your word, here and elsewhere, that whatever lack I have in what I say will be made up most bountifully with your Holy Spirit. If I err, Lord, may those words be not heard. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every Sunday morning, we start off the service hearing psalms, hearing from the book of the psalms. We just go through those. Two weeks ago, we finished a set of 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And those ascent climbing, those are traditionally held to be psalms that the pilgrims going to Mount Zion for the appointed feasts would sing during their traveling as they are ascending to Mount Zion. Follow me here. If this is the word of God and those psalms were used that way, that should tell us a lot about how we go and should go to worship. The sort of songs that they were singing should be the sort of songs we sing. The thoughts that they had should be the thoughts that we have on Sunday morning as we go to worship. Time does not allow me to go through all 15. (laughs) Psalm 84, which I read, covers a lot of the same ground and is spoken by one who may be, who is either yearning for that worship, even though he can go, he still yearns for it, or someone who may be separated for some reason or another. The thoughts that go through his head, let us see what they are and let us take those on ourselves. I'll be referring to a lot of the songs of ascent throughout the sermon. So let's go to this. Read the first two verses. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Now the tabernacle that's being spoken of here, that the psalmist would think of, would be that dwelling place of the Lord. Early on, it was a tent when they were wandering in the wilderness and even as they'd settled the land, but before Solomon built his temple. After Solomon, it was the temple. That temple was destroyed and then another one was raised. But we're thinking primarily then of this special place in Jerusalem where God had appointed for him to dwell in a particular and special way. So we start off with, how lovely is your tabernacle? 
That's a fair statement. If you look at the description of the tent or you look at the description of Solomon's temple, it's a grand place. But there's a different flavor to this than if you look at a house and you say, that's a nice house, well built. Because we, if we're going house hunting or if we're just appreciating a house, we never would, or at least I hope we wouldn't, ever follow that by saying, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord, for this place. It's a nice house, but it's not worth feigning for. But this place is. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. More. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. There's an intensity there. We see that intensity in other places. In Psalm 42, this is a psalm where it's almost clear from the reading of it that the psalmist can't get to Jerusalem. He is separated for one reason or another, but he wants to be there and he can't be there. And how does in Psalm 42 start off? We sing this often. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? If you're thirsty, you generally don't think about a whole lot else. It starts consuming all of your thoughts. So we hear the same sort of thing from David in Psalm 27, verse 4. Do we remember the one thing that David wants? Here's what he says. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And indeed, the pilgrims who would be going to Mount Zion, Psalm 122, one of the songs of ascent, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. The joy of just being in that city. These are all really beautiful psalms. But they strike me the same way the Sermon on the Mount strikes me. Beautiful, and yet when I consider their words, I feel a cold wind blowing. It's not blowing from the words, it's blowing from me because I look at this and I say, when have I done this? When have I felt anything close to this? When have I longed for Sunday morning to come at the end of a week? Have I ever gotten close to fainting? Have I ever felt thirsty like this? And yet this psalmist does. Look at the words that we have here. Fainting, longing, heart and flesh cry out. As the deer pants for the brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. David considers it one thing, the only one and necessary thing. And we know that from other places. Because we know we ought to seek first the kingdom of God, then all the other things will be added. And yet, if you're like me, you have a dozen thoughts, at least, rumbling around in your head at any given time. 
that sort of single-mindedness can be rare for us. So we read these things, they're beautiful, but if we realize that this is the word of God and this is the way we should be, they're convicting as well. Because just like the Sermon on the Mount, we fall so far short of this. The question is, why should we have this sort of attitude? What are the facts of the case? Then three things that we should keep in mind. Not only that whatever we should know should get in here and stay in here inside our minds, but that it would also work its way to our hearts. We can know all these facts. We can know that God is everywhere and omniscient, that he knows everything. And yet our hearts still won't know it and will continue to sin as if he isn't all-knowing. The same thing here. It needs to be in our head. It needs to get to our heart. And not just the heart of emotion, but the heart of will. So that we would be different people. Why should we have this attitude, this intensity of longing for worship, this single-mindedness about worship? Well, let's just look at a few things that we do on a Sunday. One of the first things that we do is we sing. What singing is, is in the context of worship, the fulfillment of what we read in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. There's a lot about thanksgiving there. Now, when it comes to thanksgiving, where do we start? We can start right where we are. And if we're singing, the first thing that we can give thanks for is singing. Think about it. We can sing and have sung this morning and countless Sundays in the past, sung hymns to God. We did not run away from that. That was something that was enjoyable to us. Is that how we were before God touched our hearts? Did we really want to sing praises to a God whom we hated? But we do now. That is a great gift. Think about, think about what our songs are that are in our hearts. Is it born to be wild? How about I'm a child of the king? Is it I can't get no satisfaction? Or is it be thou my vision? All of those things are things that we can sing now because God has touched our hearts. And we can love them and enjoy them. Therefore, the scripture commends to us singing. Numerous psalms talk about singing a new song again. And so we have lots of song in our service. Think about that as a blessing. Because had not God given us those things, had not God given us the songs, the psalms, the hymns, 
And were we not given a heart to enjoy them, we would be saying can't get no satisfaction. Or worse. Then what do we do? We bring up offerings in these plates. What does... How should we approach this act of giving? Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians, who wouldn't want to have this said about them? Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, but he's talking about the Macedonian church. Wouldn't you like this to be said about you? Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their abilities, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, employing us with great urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? And it can be, and maybe has been already. Think about who this supports. Think about people who are translating scripture into languages that do not yet have scripture. Think about those who are witnessing or building up saints in other places. Does the Lord God have power to do all of this directly by a decree? Yes. But he has chosen not to, strangely enough. He's chosen us that we might be agents through which these things are done. This isn't a burden, therefore. It is a privilege. And if we can grasp anything of what's going on, we will see it as a privilege and not see it as a burden. And this is how the scriptures portray it. If we go to Malachi, after some very harsh verses in chapter 3, we read this in, in verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Now know know this, that God in very few instances says, try me, test me. That's an exception rather than a rule. He does it in certain very important cases and this is one of them says, test me in this. Bring in the tithes and see if you do not receive more blessing than you're able to handle. Do we believe this? Does this sound like a burden? doesn't sound like a burden. It sounds like not even a light burden, but a blessing to be able to put things in these plates. What more? We have communion once a month. And when we have communion, Nathan spends a lot of time building a fence around this table. 
of who may come and who may not come. Does he do that just to be difficult? Does he do that just to be just to be hard? No. No, he doesn't do that to be hard. He wants there not to be pearls cast before swine. Don't anybody take that personally. <laughs> or do, if the occasion calls. Because what is there in front of us is something very, very precious. We are remembering the death of our Lord by which salvation has come to us. And it should not be dishonored. If this seems difficult, let's think of something difficult. Let's think of something else. Let's say you're the curator of the Rakes Museum in Amsterdam. A lot of paintings there, and you've got a really, a real good masterpiece, a large one called The Night Watch by Rembrandt, hanging someplace. In some other places you have, maybe back in the back rooms with, with towels over them, third-rate works by unknown artists. Where do you put your security? Where do you have your laser beams and so forth that are making sure nobody tries to take the night watch out of that museum if they could? It's a rather big painting. Do you put it there or do you put it back in the back room with the third-rate works? You put it in front of the night watch because that's the thing that's worth so much. Okay? If the children of this generation are, can be sometimes wiser than the children of light. Jesus tells us that. They know this is important. We have to protect it. The same thing with the communion table. Nathan does that not because he's being a fuddy-duddy, but because it's a very precious thing. That's also why we have so many restrictions around sexuality and marriage, not because the thing is ugly, but because the thing is so beautiful and precious that God doesn't want to see that treasure stolen and desecrated. And so there's lots of fences that are put around. The same thing with communion. That alone ought to be enough to tell us when it comes the first of the month and we see that bread and we see that juice, that this is something extraordinary in front of us. And we touch it with our hands and we touch it with our lips. This is no small thing. We are remembering the death of our Lord. We read on those Sundays as well, creed. I'm not going to go through all of it because one part of it is sufficient. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That ought to bring tears to our eyes that we can say that. That we don't say, I believe that there's spirits in all the rocks and the trees. That we don't say, I believe in horoscopes. That we don't say, I believe in the lines on the palms of my hand or in tea leaves or any other thing. None of that. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. When we read this creed, each phrase is a battle won. Each phrase is another Canaanite clan that's been killed and more ground given to Israel. Everything in here represents a battle won. Grown men should weep when we consider what has been given to us 
not to make these words holy, but to remember what these words mean, that now we can say, I believe in God. I don't have to offer up sacrifices to my ancestors. I don't have to sacrifice my children to Moloch. All of that is garbage. All of that is dung. It's worthless. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. If we can't get excited about God dwelling in human flesh, what could be more exciting than that? It's doctrine. It can be it can sound like dry dogma, but it's the sort of thing that pagan myths were made out of the gods coming down. But here, the one true God, the holy God, did come down from heaven and dwell among us as a man. Think about it. That is an incredible thing. And then we spend a lot of time hearing the word of God pronounced and expounded upon. Think about this. A saved person wants to hear the word of God. Is it pleasant for an unsaved person to hear the word of God? We have this word before us, preserved. We can get it easily. We can hear it expounded here, elsewhere. And we want that. That's not a small thing. In some places, you pay for your life with that sort of thing. Here, so far, we don't pay for our lives with it. Maybe we get ridiculed, but that's a small thing. Again, people have lost their lives over this. We should, when hearing it, realize all of the ways God has preserved this for us, for our benefit in the here and now. Let me go on. Let me go back to Psalm 84. Verse 3. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord. My king, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. The psalmist here starts off with something playful. He sees maybe birds in the rafters, I don't know, and says, it would be great to be them. I don't have to live up in Dan or wherever it is that I live far away and have to make the journey. To be like that bird up there, I could be dwelling so close all the time. Then his focus shifts in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Here he's obviously thinking of people. And who would those people be? But the Levite priests. Those who were appointed out of the nation of Israel to do that service. So here's a question. Have we ever given such thanks for Nathan? Or if we've been in other churches for those pastors? We are blessed to have a pastor. Not all churches do. Not all churches have faithful pastors. We do. 
when I hear Christians, and I don't hear them in this church, but I hear them other places, and they never have a good thing to say about a preacher, I worry. I worry because here has been assigned a person whose job it is to, among other things, look at the Word of God. Now, the rest of us have other things to do during the day. And we'd like to have more time to do this sort of thing. We should take joy that we have someone, that we can support someone to look at the scriptures, to look at them more deeply than we can, because we simply don't have time. We should be mining out as much time as we can, but... The psalmist here still gives thanks for those who have been particularly assigned to the tasks of worship. So we should be thankful for the priests. And they are in the songs of ascent as well. The very last one is one most likely where the people are leaving. And they say something back to the priests who stay there. And then you hear a response from the priests to them. They say, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And they say back, The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Isn't that a beautiful picture? This is not having the preacher for lunch, as we put it. This is a joyful acknowledgement that God has given us these priests. Going back to Psalm 84, the psalmist changes his, his view. Verse 5, Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The psalmist takes his eyes off of the priests and looks at all of the people who've come for this appointed feast. Think about it. At the end here, it says they go from strength to strength. So you have people from the north from Dan, people from the south from Beersheba, and they're each going to Jerusalem. And at each town they pass, more people join, strength to strength. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. Now, nowadays, if you got that many people in a small place, and Jerusalem is a small place, you'd have a riot, most likely. It sounds like you're setting up a powder keg. But listen to this from Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The oil pouring down upon the head and the beard and the garments of Aaron. That's his consecration. Oil also makes the face shine, makes it glad. The Psalms talk about that. That's what dwelling together in unity is. 
that's how the psalmist describes it, and apparently has seen it in Jerusalem. If it doesn't seem precious enough, if you go to the first psalm of the Psalm 120, here's what it says. In my distress I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Can you think of a bigger contrast? This person apparently dwells either outside the covenant community or in a place where people aren't very good. He goes from that to the vision of Psalm 133. Who wouldn't rather have Psalm 133? And so we should also take joy. We ought to come on Sunday morning and look around us and see the people. See those who are here around us. Take joy in lack of divisiveness. Seeing brethren dwell together without snarling, without bickering. That ought to be a joy for us. It should also be a joy that there are people here wanting to hear the word of God. Consider it. Consider it for a minute. C.S. Lewis pointed it out this way. He said, you haven't met any ordinary humans. There are no ordinary humans. The person that you sit next to, the person you snub, the person that you help, the person you hurt, is going one place or another, heaven or hell. A creature who will have blessing or cursing. You haven't met any ordinary people. We should keep that in mind when we come here. Because it can become so ordinary. It can become such a routine that we miss the immensity. We miss the immensity of hearing the word of God, of singing his praises, of offering, of communion. We miss the immensities that are sitting right next to us in the church. But the psalmist here doesn't. We go on. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. We spend time in worship each morning, praying. Now, do we see the blessing of that? Do we see the blessing of being able to go to God's courts, offer supplications? offer confessions, offer praise. To get a flavor of what it's like, of what the situation was and what it is now, think of Queen Esther. Queen, a Jewish queen, but in the land of the Persians. And they had a rule, and their rule was, you don't go into the court of the king unless he has called you. And if you do, you will die unless he extends the golden scepter, which says you will live. There's a plot against her people, and she must go in and make some sort of supplication, in this case, to have a feast. There's a lot of fear and trembling around that, and prayers are being offered up for her so that she can go, and she does go in, and the king is merciful and extends the golden scepter. Or think of Nehemiah. He's heard how bad things are in Jerusalem 
He's the king's cupbearer. He has a sad face. I don't know if they had a rule against sad faces, but he knew that was troubling. And when the king says, why do you have a sad face? He says he's troubled. This could be it. This could be my head cut off. He prays. He tells the king what he wants and it's granted. What's our situation? The golden scepter has been extended to us. Not only that, we've been commanded to go to the Lord in prayer. We don't have to tremble like Esther did because we know that we should go to the Lord in prayer. That is a wonderful thing. Not only that, what sort of things do we pray? Here's one from the Song of Ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We can go to the Lord in confession. Think about what that involves. It involves going before the king and saying, I have disobeyed the laws of your land. I have, essentially, committed treason. How do you think that would have fared in Ahasuerus' court where Esther was? Probably would have been hung. But with the Lord, there is forgiveness. We can go and say, I have transgressed your commandment. And he will forgive. He is faithful to forgive. Would that our earthly rulers would have such mercy. There is also thanksgiving that can be given. There's a couple of similar sorts of psalms in the Songs of Ascent. Psalm 124, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, they would have swallowed us alive, when their wrath was kindled against us. And then the end, Our help was in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then in Psalm 129, Many a time they have afflicted me from youth, let Israel now say. Many a time they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed my back, they made their furrows long. The Lord is righteous, he has cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. There is thanksgiving that can be offered to the Lord as well. Offered by those going to Zion in times of old, offered by us now. Back in Psalm 84, moving on to verse 9, the psalmist says, O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. He's thinking here of the king, specifically, in all likelihood, the earthly king. We may wish for better days. We may wish for days when David was king over us rather than the kings that we have now. But don't let... The current situation obscure the fact that ultimately this refers to the heavenly king as well. 
And who is that but Christ? Our shield? All of the things that we associate with the name of Christ. Our Redeemer? Thanks for that. And so then, in verse 10, back to this intense longing. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Here we can do some math. A day in your courts is better than a thousand. A thousand where? A thousand thousand what? Days? A thousand days where? In his courts? Like, I'd rather be there only one day rather than a thousand? No, that can't be right. A thousand anywhere else. So get this. The psalmist is saying, I'll trade about three years of my life if I can be in your courts one day. That's how precious it is to me. Not only that, I don't have to be the priest. I'll be the doorkeeper. I don't even have to go inside the way the birds can. I would be glad to be a doorkeeper, to stand at the threshold. It's not a real exalted position, friends. But the psalmist would be satisfied with it. This is a psalmist who, if he were translated to the days of Paul, and he heard Paul's admonition Don't sue each other, rather suffer a wrong so that the church would not essentially have a black eye because of your bickering. It's better to suffer some loss than take your lawsuits into a pagan court. He'd understand that because he says, I don't care what my position is. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather have whatever low position as long as I can be here. Now, this applies, all of this applies, not only to church on Sunday, but to how we should feel about what, it, what we are preparing for when we come to church. And what is that but eternity in heaven? This is not a new revelation. This is not something that the New Testament tells us that people of old didn't know. Solomon builds his temple. And here's what he says when they are consecrating it. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. He knows that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He has promised that he would be in this particular place in a special way. But that doesn't mean that he's not on the other side of the Jordan. It doesn't mean that he's not on the Western Sea, the Mediterranean. He knows that. He's that wise. And all of the people then knew that as well. Thus, when we think of these things, we give thanks for salvation. If we go back to the Psalms of Ascent, we can go to something like 126 which is one of the most beautiful psalms. Here is our position, my friends. 
We were captive to sin. We were in captivity. And he brought us out. Through the blood of Christ Jesus, applied to us through the Holy Spirit, out of bondage to sin, and into communion with him as adopted sons and daughters of God. We have a beautiful picture of that for those who came back from Babylon, a wicked place. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. If all that wasn't enough, the immensities that we're confronted with in this room on a Sunday morning and in other faithful churches across the world, he gives us blessings in the here and now. Psalm 84 continues, For the Lord God is a sun and shield, in verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And in the Psalms of Ascent, I'll read two Psalms right next to each other, 127 and 128, that talk about what God does in the here and now. Appropriate things for us to give thanks for on Sunday morning, whenever we worship. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Psalm 128 Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. A beautiful picture of all sorts of blessings, of family life, of the food that we get from the labor of our hands. And so we finish Psalm 84. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. When we go to Hebrews and we read this, see if it sounds different now. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. Some were giving up assembling together. The writer of Hebrews says, do not do that. 
Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because it's a big burden? Because were they shrieking, shrinking from this task because it's just too difficult? I would say not. I doubt if that's the case. It's probably much more the case that they have forgotten all of the blessings and riches that have been bestowed on them so richly in being able to assemble together in the first place. Hearing the word of God and not running from it. Having the bread and the juice and not drinking oneself condemnation. Being able to offer things, for example, for the, to the saints in Jerusalem. Being besides creatures of worth and value to the Father. Those things are forgotten, and so Sunday morning becomes forgotten because the importance of these things is not considered. Now, it has to get into the head. My constant fear for myself is that's as far as it goes, and it never works its way down. Or I can generate some emotion. I can generate some enthusiasm. It'll last for a season, but no longer. Our prayer should be that it gets through to all of us, every aspect of our being, because that's what we read in the Psalms. We do not read of an enthusiastic person as a flash in the pan. You know, for a little while, very excited, but like the seed that fell, is it on stony ground? It comes up, but then it's, it doesn't last. We want to be seed in good soil. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the things that you have given us here. We ask for eyes that would be open, that we would see what it is that you have given us most graciously and most abundantly, that you give us a role in spreading your gospel, that you allow us the remembrance of the death of our Lord until he comes again. Your word, Lord, preserved by you through the blood of martyrs, through the painstaking work of people in cold, stony places, that we have your word, and we have it in such abundance, Lord. All of these things, each other, our brethren dwelling in unity, which should make our faces shine as if we've rubbed them with oil. Lord, we ask that our minds, that we would be mindful of these things and that our hearts would be changed that stone would be chipped away from them, flesh revealed, Lord, that we would not be cold like reptiles, Lord, but that we would 
be warm, warm to these things that you have given us. Lord, we pray that we would never look upon these things as burdens, but rather that we would see them as glorious blessings and privileges. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.